0: Welcome to this episode of Q2. Today we're going to talk about the ethical considerations of conducting research and how those considerations might
1: differ between quantitative and qualitative research. So the first topic we want to discuss um, is the fact that we all have an obligation to conduct research ethically, and this is specifically for human research. Although if you are You know, in a biology department researching animals, you have your own set of ethical obligations as well. So specific to human research, the first thing we have to do is submit an application to our institutional review board, which is we also call the IRB. So, Dr. Manning. What are some things that you must include in a qualitative research IRB application? Kind of, basically, you're letting the um, the
0: institutional review board know what's your plan for data collection. How are you going to um, get participants to participate? What questions are you going to ask them? Um, you're just basically giving them your entire. It's your methods section, basically, mm. is what you're submitting.
1: Mm. What about you? What do you do? I mean, it is the same. The IRB basically wants everything that your participants are going to come in contact with so if you're doing a Mm -hmm. survey you have to include all of your survey instruments if you're doing an experiment you have to include whatever your participants are going to see so a lot of my research is online experiments they view a website i have to send screenshots of the website um, of anything that participants could actually see the irb wants to see what that is as well Um, If my, you know, in my experiment, if they're playing a video game or if they're watching a video, I have to send that information to the IRB. Um, So they do. They want everything. We also have to include. um, Like, again, my studies are all online survey and experiment, but I still have to include hard copies or PDF versions of all the documents. So even though the informed consent might be within the survey itself that my participants will see the IRB also wants a separate document of informed consent which is the exact same thing but they like it separate they like it in both forms basically the IRB wants everything your participants are going to see or encounter Um, they also want to know like what are the risks how are you mitigating those risks for participants how long are your participants going to be involved in the study? Are they getting paid? That's another thing. Are we compensating participants in any sort of way? Um, yeah, it's it's all all the details, everything. <laughs> That's what's included. And then we also do yeah. have to upload not just the number from our city certificate, but we have to upload the actual certificate. Um, and at least within at CNU, you um, The IRB website that we use, you upload your city certificate and it's uploaded for good. You just have to link it to every individual application you submit.
0: Right. Right. Correct. Yeah. And listening to you talk about all the things that you have to submit when you're doing studies, when I'm working, the kind of qualitative research I do is most often face to face or. What, virtual mm-hmm. interviews, depending on the um, where people are, um, so though so the interview protocol and the informed consent are two things that I have to upload. And like you were saying, how do you um, if there's some kind of um, risk you know how yeah. can you alleviate that or mitigate that when i'm doing more observational research in the form of an ethnography or an autoethnography or a virtual ethnography so that's where you would be looking at websites mm-hmm. you don't have to for we don't have to upload screenshots of the websites we'd be looking mm-hmm. at because you're with um with qualitative research you're looking at publicly available um things so so I just—it was interesting for me to hear you talk about. Oh, yeah! If you were doing some kind of experimental design, or if you were, if it was part of your um,
1: survey. It, that's interesting. Yeah, we don't have to. Do well, and part of the difference is if you're doing a virtual ethnography, you're interacting with the live website, whereas within an mm-hmm. experiment, that website's not live because I need to have control over it. Um, and that's right. why I can send screenshots or, you know, the exact experiment material, because um, I don't interact in the live setting with an experiment. It's very yeah. much a controlled um, material.:
0: Yeah. yeah. OK. So it seems like when you fill out the IRB, they want to know how you protect the anonymity or the confidentiality of study participants. And I think this is one of the places where there's um, a pretty big difference between quantitative and qualitative research. The qualitative research, you don't have anonymity. You know who you're talking to. The confidentiality is you uh, try to mask their
1: identity. So do you want to talk about anonymity? Yeah. So... For us in in quantitative research, well, first of all, anonymity and confidentiality of your participants is one of the biggest issues that you have to address and you have to account for when you're applying with your IRB or when you're conducting any sort of research, it's one of the biggest issues um that we have to be concerned about and so in quantitative research if you're doing research online like i said most of my research is online stuff we can be like your my participants are anonymous because they do not enter any identifying information i cannot connect their survey responses to their offline identity there's no way now with that being said there is some argument debate Discussion in the technology side of the communication discipline that no, everyone has an IP address. We can always track down people through their IP addresses. Technically, so, and so they say I, an anonymity doesn't actually exist. There's no such thing. Technically, okay, sure, that's true. I can, if I had the ability, I could track down an IP address. I don't have that motivation. Nobody has that motivation. Hardly anybody actually has that ability either. Um, no one. We, we don't have any interest in that. And so we do tend to say online studies are essentially anonymous. We cannot connect the individual with their specific responses. Um, now, if we do an experiment where it's in person in the lab, Um, which I've done a few studies like that, they have to sign a physical copy of their informed consent. We do know who they are because they sign up to come into the lab. So it's essentially the same considerations that you might have when you're conducting an interview. We can identify them. So we need to maintain confidentiality. So would you like to um, talk a little bit more about how you protect confidentiality then?
0: Yeah. So when I do research, I have, I know who my study participants are, and I assign them um, a participant code. And so I know who, so I, I keep that under, um, you know, locked on my, con- whatever, password, double password, right, protected yeah. computer, so it's locked that way. Um, and I, when I write up the results, actually, okay, when I'm doing the analysis, I usually keep people's real names just to keep straight in terms of my thinking. But then when I when I'm writing the analysis results up for somebody else to read, when they you know go public beyond just my mm-hmm. eyes, I um, give people pseudonyms like I, I make up a name for them. There's some people who talk about just participant A or yeah. participant one or just do that kind of thing. I think um, For qualitative research, another aspect of it is it's more creative and it's more um, you want to kind of get pulled into the moment when you're reading qualitative research. You want to feel like you're there. And so I usually give people an actual name, Mm -hmm. not just participant this or participant
1: that, because I think it's more readerly that way. Yeah. Um, But yeah. Yeah. And and that's, again, a, a big difference between quantitative and qualitative is that in your write ups in your um, publications, you'll refer to specific responses. Mm-hmm. And so you have to give your participants a pseudonym. Whereas in quantitative, we collapse all the data and we look at it, like I said in, in the last podcast, from a mass perspective rather or macro rather than a micro perspective. And so we never or very rarely, if ever, return refer to specific participant responses so even if we do an experiment where they come into the lab and they are identifiable the researcher myself we we are the only ones who know their identity and because we've completed the city's certificate training we are ethical we have obligations to be ethical i will never reveal a participant's identity, and I keep it again password protected, computer locked up, that sort of thing. But we never refer to per- specific participants in our manuscript, so we don't have to worry um, about the pseudonym sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, and and as and when you're if you're in qualitative research, if you're taking an excerpt from somebody's, um, say, from their interview, your your transcript of that interview and there's something identifiable in terms of what they're talking about like oh you could figure out who this is because they mentioned their address or they mentioned some so you you do little adjustments to the data to um you either drop that part out so you just don't include anything that would be identifiable through um geography or specific personal details um yes you you do you do some masking
1: to help protect their, protect their yeah, identity. Yeah, and that um, that kind of starts to tie into the next point that we're gonna talk about of informed consent, where our participants are required to be informed on what they can expect in their participation. And if you do an interview and somebody, you know, refers to their friend or their spouse or their roommate, and they use information that could be identifiable of that roommate or spouse or friend, that person has not consented. And so it Mm -hmm. makes sense that you would have to mask that data um, because your actual participant who did consent is now referring to people who could be identified that did not consent. So yeah, 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 that's a I think that's something that people don't actually consider a lot of the times. They don't think of identifiability of like secondary characters, we could call them. Um, But that's also definitely an ethical consideration.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Dr. Stern and I wrote a paper, and an an autoethnography on grieving Kathy. So Kathy Byers was our um, longtime administrative assistant, and she died. And that was uh, when she died in 2018. 2018. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that was it was um, so it was it was awful. And so Dr. Stern and I were writing about how do you um, how do you grieve? somebody who's such a big part of your personal life and your professional life. And so it was, it was, I'll, I'll put a link to that study in the, um, the podcast description, episode description. Um, but the, as Dr. Stern and I were doing this process, we were um, writing a lot about our personal lives that included our partners and details about our partners' lives. And, and then we shared that, I think it was an ethical, it was an ethical choice. And it was also this thing called member checking where you kind of, you share your analysis with people who are part of your study. So maybe somebody you interviewed, you'd say, here's what I'm finding. What do you think of that? Anyway, long and short of this, when Dr. Stern and I shared this with um, our partners, they both said, um, why are you including mm. that detail of my life in your study for you yeah. and everyone to read? So we, um, we decided to cut parts of our paper because um, because it wasn't relevant to the main research question. I mean, it gave context kind of for what was going on, but it didn't really address what the focus of our study. So anyway, this is just the the idea of um, ethics in your research happens uh, throughout the entire process. It seems to be most evident. And when you're thinking about IRB and informed consent and at the beginning, what can you do? But it, it it happens throughout your analysis and, um, another, I mean, you were talking in our conversation before we started recording about, um, like doing literature reviews Mm -hmm. and
1: do you want to talk about that? Um, you mean the, oh, I'm sorry. What I'm not, what do you mean? (laughs) Were you
0: looking at squirrels? no, no. (laughs) Um, the like if you're um, if you're doing if you're doing a review of literature and you plagiarize that's not ethical so it's like kind of the ethical dimension just shows up in so many different places that
1: aren't yeah I mean when you know we started today's episode talking about the IRB application and data collection but the ethics don't stop once you've collected your data and you're analyzing it it's you still have ethical obligations once you're analyzing and then writing up your results. So we have an obligation um, to not plagiarize, to not take credit for someone else's work, which seems obvious, but you'd be surprised how it can happen. Um, And so no plagiarizing. We also have, um, in quantitative research at least, one of our ethical problems is what we call harking so hypothesizing mm-hmm. after results are known. So once we analyze our, like we are supposed to have a hypothesis, and then we're testing that hypothesis. It's a very time-sequenced thing. Um, and it is very unethical. It is wrong to analyze your data. You find out what your significant results are, and then you say, oh, yeah, I thought that all along. Well, no, you didn't. <laughs> That's- That's a lie. That's false. Um, It is so tempting because we can only publish when we have significant results. And if we hypothesize something that didn't actually work, we can't publish it. And so harking is a very tempting um, thing to do, but it is completely unethical. It's it's deceptive. It's it is wrong. And so. Yeah, ethical considerations are not just a, you know, prior to data collection or while you're collecting, it's, it never ends. Yeah, yeah. And
0: again, this was um, the hearing about harking from you is what qualitative researchers do all the time. We start with some kind of, here's our, you know, a, a question that we want some kind of research question that we want to address by... Talking to people, observing people, and then you see what kind of information you find. And as you're analyzing your data, you might discover something that you didn't think would be there. And so you talk about it. You don't, you don't, it, which I think, I think would be construed as harking from a quantitative perspective. And it's completely expected
1: from a qualitative right, perspective. Yeah. It's actually a hallmark of good qualitative research, where yeah. it's completely unethical and quantitative. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, any other
0: things about ethics and quantitative and qualitative research you want to talk about? I, I
1: think we, you know, there's, there's so much to consider with the ethics of conducting research. You and I are both going to, you know, talk to our own students in our respective classes. Um, I think the main difference we have between quantitative and qualitative is identifiability of participants. That's the main difference. But when it comes to ethics, we have the same considerations and the same obligations regardless of how you're collecting your data.
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. So I guess we just wanna remind people to be sure to complete your city training so you can be an ethical researcher. Yep. And I'll put links to CNU's IRB and the city training in the episode description Maybe that article that Dr. Stern and I did. Um, and be sure to email us with questions. So that's it that's for Q2.